0: going to do Bible teaching, we really need the Word, don't we? So let me uh, pick up my Bible. If you have your Bible, would you open it, please, to Numbers chapter 21? Uh, maybe you have to switch it on first, but uh, please make the Bible available to you if you can, or look on with a neighbor, perhaps, as we turn to God's Word. This is a fantastic book, this book of Numbers. I'm encouraged that you've been studying it. Some of these books tend to be neglected. You ever done that read through the Bible thing, you know, and you usually get to Numbers and then you start with these big long lists of names and this person begat, this person begat, this person began, this person, you're like, okay, that's enough, let's stop there. This is is the book of Numbers. Uh, It's it's called Numbers because it's counting the people. Uh, It's counting the generations, it's counting the people of God who came up out of Egypt, saved by the Lord's mighty hand, and there's a census given at the beginning of the book And if you look at chapter 20, you discover that that people who were called up out of Egypt were told that they would not enter God's promised land because of their rebellion, because of their grumbling, their complaint, their failure to believe and to trust in God. And at the end of chapter 20, you were looking at that last week, you hear that Aaron died. It's a kind of marker they put down to say, yep, that's the kind of end. The end of that generation who came up out of Egypt have wandered in the desert for the best part of 40 years. And now we have a new generation rising up. A new generation. And we like to think that we're the people of a new generation, don't we? And as we come to this uh, short section, uh, the, the writer of Numbers is giving us this impression of, okay, so here's a new generation. What's the new thing that God is going to be doing? Uh, what is this new generation's relationship with God going to look like? And We don't have time to read it today, but chapter 21, verses 1 to 3 give us this tremendous victory where the people of God trust God, and they have a great victory at a place called Hormah. And then we come to the section we're reading today. So read with me, read along with me uh, as we uh, read Numbers 21, verse 4. They, the Israelites, traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea, to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we, we, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole, anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. This is God's word for us this morning. Father, we just want to pray for your help now as we come to examine this ancient text. We pray that it might have contemporary relevance for us as you take it by your Spirit and apply it to our hearts. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I've given my little talk today, uh, this title, uh, When Your Road Goes South, Look Up. Uh, I don't know how your uh, journeys have been through life, um, but I'm sure all of us could tell stories about when things don't go the way we planned. I'm not sure if this is a a turn of phrase that uh, comes from across the pond or where it's come from, but the idea of your journey going south, of your life going south, is the idea that things don't go the way that you planned. They're they're out of kilter with your original destination, and suddenly you're heading in the wrong direction as far as you can see. Uh, And so I thought this was a good uh, illustration or a good title because, in fact, these people are heading south. I love maps. Do you like maps? I love maps. Google Earth is like, oh, I have loved lots of fun with Google Earth. Here is the, here is the map of Newcastle. You probably recognize it. You recognize the t- River Tyne. You recognize some of the places around. And we've got a red dot up there somewhere that marks where our location is today. I love the map because I can see something of the surroundings. I can see what's going on, a place I've never been to before. Uh, what are the familiar places? You know, Aldi's. Are you Aldi's people or are you Tesco people? Oh, there you are. Uh, maybe you're Sainsbury's people and you come away over here. Uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, I was fascinated by the fact that yeah, Toby's Carvery is up here, and I think uh, Andy's taking me there for lunch later on. So, yeah, but it's interesting to see the surroundings, isn't it? I love street view, you know, when you get down to street view, you can actually virtually walk the city. It's a fascinating thing, a fascinating thing to me. And today I want to highlight for you something of another map, a map that guides something of the story that we've been reading off today. Uh, We don't get a street view. In fact, we're not absolutely certain of the uh, exact path that the people of Israel took. But certainly we're aware of the fact that they came out of Egypt, you can see it there, Um, and they headed down in this direction with this miraculous crossing of the Red Sea and then down into the wilderness. Oh, that first generation complaining and moaning and grumbling, there they are. And finally God brings them to Sinai. He gives them his law and he shows them how they should live and he promises them that they're going to come into a promised land that's going to be theirs land flowing with milk and honey. And so they head off, but of course on the way uh, they are still complaining and they come to a place called Kadesh Barnea and they're supposed to move straight into Canaan, the promised land. But of course they send out the spies. You maybe heard about that already and it's a disaster. They don't believe God. They don't trust God. And so these people spend 38 years wandering in the desert here. And in the story that we're hearing this this morning, we discover that as they come around this way, they're supposed to cross Edom here. But in chapter 20, the king of Edom says, no way, you're not getting through. And to cut a long story short, the only way to get to their destination is to go south. To go south. They head south, and they follow this route down here around a mountain called Mount Hor, and they go right around Mount Hor and our story happens somewhere in this great rift valley, uh, which cuts its way. The biggest scar in the earth's atmosphere, it goes all the way down into East Africa, where I worked for many years. Uh, and in the midst of that great valley, they came uh, into trouble that we've read about this morning. Why are we looking at the story of a people who lived three and a half thousand years ago, or thereabouts, a, a people whose life and destinations were very different from ours? Well, because the Bible tells us that there are lessons to be learned from their lives, quite simply. First Corinthians chapter 10, uh, we discover this. These things happen to them as examples and written down as warnings for us. And so we, we come to this text with a, an expectation that God has something to teach us, that when our roads go south, when our uh, expectations are turned on their head, When the things that we thought would be great and good are no longer there, then what lessons can we learn from the experience of the Israelites? So I've got three headings for you this morning, like every good preacher. Sorry they don't all begin with P, but uh, yeah, I want to think with you about the people's response, the people's response to the trials of life. Uh, Not only those people, but us also what are our responses? I want to think with you about God's response. What's God's response in the face of the responses that we have to the circumstances of life? And then the last section I want to look at is this idea of God's amazing readiness, despite our rebellion and sin and complaint and grumbling, to show us mercy and grace. And each of these ideas comes from the text here this morning. So let's look at them in turn. People's response to the trials of life. They traveled. That's the first thing it says in the text. They traveled. And I'm sure you have too. I don't mean to worldwide destinations, but the very fact that you're here today means that you have traveled in life. Life has given you an opportunity to see things, to experience things, to understand things. And life will be very different for each one of us. We've all traveled on a road Uh, A road that sometimes has been great and of great blessing and success. I'm sure you could tell me stories of that. But as I mentioned earlier, every one of us could no doubt tell us some really sad stories, some real difficulty that you have faced uh, along the way. Um, we, We discover from these people, excuse me just a moment. We discover from these people that on the way they grew impatient. When things didn't go as they planned, they grew impatient. And sometimes that's how things happen in our lives. When things don't go according to how we plan them, then we're looking for a way to make it happen, a way to change the situation. Uh, And we try to force it, perhaps. And yeah, that is not always available to us, is it? It's not always available to us. We can't always exactly manage and manipulate our circumstances in such a way that we can sort it. I don't know if you're the kind of person who likes to sort things, to make it right, to make it the way you want it to be. But here's a people who are not happy about the fact that we're, we're not heading to the promised land anymore. We've been turned south. We're heading south further into the desert, further into the wilderness, further from our destination. And these people are frustrated by that. And so we hear that they spoke up. They spoke up. And often the people who are nearest and closest to us, maybe they are relatives, maybe they are parents, maybe they are leaders in our churches or wherever it may be. These are the people who take the brunt of that response from us when we are impatient and frustrated in our direction. And they get the grief and we mouth off to them and we give them a bit of a hard time but it's notable, notable here in the text that they don't just speak about the t- their, their leaders. They don't speak against Moses, they speak against God. And it seems that the, the scriptures here have a, a, a straight line equation. People who are raised up by God to lead His people are spokespersons on God's behalf. They are the people who hold that responsibility. When we speak against them, we speak, about, we speak against God Himself. We need to check that behavior. We need to work out how that's going to be. These people come to a place where actually they're not just questioning their leaders anymore. They're questioning God's amazing grace in their life that brought them out of slavery and bondage in Egypt in a life of great oppression and difficulty and brought them into the hope that was held out to them in the promised land. Not an instant answer, but a promise and a hopeful answer that they could hold on to. And so we see that they question even God's saving grace uh, in these situations. It's interesting, isn't it, that they moan about the things that are their daily experience. They moan about their food. Um, I don't know what the things are that you moan about. What do you moan about? We all have something we moan about. Maybe the things that you moan about are you're entitled to moan about them, perhaps. You feel you're entitled. Maybe there are things that have gone wrong and your life has been turned upside down and you feel it's just not fair. It's just not fair. And I want you to be patient. I don't want you to be impatient. I want you to hold for a moment and think again about your reaction because the daily experiences of life can sometimes force us to a place where we want to respond we, we instinctively respond. We have a sense of justice, and we want to see justice upheld, the right thing being done for us. These people probably felt a little bit like that, and yet in the midst of their responses, they're actually scorning God's amazing provision for them. They have a perspective on life which is oriented towards their situation and they can't see beyond their own situation sometimes life crowds us in in that kind of a way what's your journey been like until now do you identify with some of the things that are being said in this text there is no question in my mind that life can be really tough illness bereavement difficulty with maybe long-term chronic pain or illness These are the things that come our way in a broken and in a sinful world. They come our way. But the big question is, what's our response to these situations? We long for understanding, don't we? An explanation. We raise the questions, the why questions. Why, why, why is this being allowed to happen? Why has this happened to me particularly? These are questions that we would follow through on. Psychotherapists are telling us that there are four big things that really impact on personal uh, identity and and personal uh, well-being. And here are the four. The four are resentment and fear and self-absorption and guilt. I guess this morning we are asking ourselves, speaker included, does this match up for my life? Is this where I am? Is this a measure of my response to the circumstances that face me. Uh, You see, resentment is often looking back to the, or looking at the situation and thinking, you know what? It could be much better. Things could be much better. Uh, There's a resentment here amongst these people. They are sort of saying, "Why, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? There's a question of resentment. You brought us into a situation which is difficult and hard, and it was always much better there in Egypt what about that idea of fear? Here's a people who are afraid. You brought us here to die in the desert? Who's not afraid of death? Who's not afraid of dying? And sometimes these things drive our hearts and maybe illness or uh, challenges we face in our health may threaten our well-being and our sense of life and, and prospering in life. Suddenly death is facing us and fear kicks in and our responses are like that and these people are the same and self-absorption well I think probably we live in a society that is more self-absorbed than we have ever been in all our years self at the very center my food is their is their problem this miserable food that you gave me to eat I don't get what I like that's really what they're saying Is it it true that these are the kind of responses that we have as we evaluate our responses in the face of difficulty in life? Who are we? How, How are we responding? Are we like them in some kind of way? And as we evaluate that, suddenly there's moments in time when we actually do feel a little bit guilty. When we see the pictures of the Turkish earthquake and we think, actually, I'm pretty well off. When we see Famine in parts of the world, when we see a tsunami, when we see great disaster, perhaps when we see others in the national news here in the UK, and we think, actually, I'm not as bad off as I thought, and suddenly guilt starts to kick in, isn't it? And we feel that we are not really responding the right way. Maybe you're the kind of person like them who's looking to the past and saying, the past was so rosy, so wonderful, and now here's the situation in the present, horrible, horrible, Maybe you're the kind of person who's saying, Well, actually, the present is my problem. It's just so tiresome. I just can't keep going on. I can't do it anymore. I've had enough. Maybe that's how you feel, as they did too. Maybe you're looking to the future and it seems unknown, and you say, That's just too scary. I need to know the answers to the future. Well, whatever it is, the people of this age and this people that we live amongst today are people who complain. That's where we usually find ourselves. And we turn in blame towards others, as we've seen, and also to God. We shake our fist in the face of God and say, it's your fault. When actually, in truth, we pay no attention to him at many other times of our life. In 1996, there was a great tragedy in the the town of Dunblane in Scotland, um, one that marks our memory because there a gunman went into the primary school and mowed down and killed a number of children. Um, And it was a great, horrific mark on our landscape in Scotland. And a headline came in the newspaper that said, Where is God? Where is God? That was the headline. Isn't it interesting how we blame God and point the finger at God in these situations? A friend of mine wrote an article to the newspaper to challenge their headline and said, you ask the question, where is God? But the question should be, where are we? Because God is where He has always been. God is where He has always been. We are in the wrong place. And that's the change of perspective that we need in the face of difficulties. Let's look at God's response here to a people, a rebellious people in verses 6 and 7. Maybe you could look down with your Bible, uh, look down at your Bible with me. But there we see this idea, then the Lord, do you notice that it's written in capital letters? This is really the, the, the name Yahweh or uh, the covenant keeping God, the God who has committed himself to this people for their salvation and for their good. That's who he is. That's, we sung about that. He's good and he's committed to them in this way, but they are not. They are not. And it's this Lord God who is uh, referred to in the text. How does he respond in the face of their incredible rebellion and complaint? God is most definitely involved. It says very clearly that the Lord sent. The Lord acts when we react. He acts in our lives in ways that perhaps we do not see because we are so self-absorbed, so fearful so anxious, whatever it may be. We fail to see beyond what our immediate circumstances uh, look like. And of course, we hear here that he sent these serpents or or, um, snakes in the desert to the people. And we hear that they bit. Of course, the serpent idea in the Bible is often referred to as the great serpent. You remember that? The one from the Garden of Eden uh, who tempted Uh, Adam and Eve. In some sense, we might say he bit them. Uh, There were many people who were bit. Uh, uh, We read that, actually, and so much so that many died. Many died. Uh, And this is the orientation of sin. This is where we head as we embrace that perspective that doesn't allow us to see God's purposes in our lives. Then we are actually affected by another influence, which poisons us and brings us even to a point of death, finally. Maybe not physical death, but really spiritual death. It's interesting, isn't it, that these people are pushing back against a God who's shown himself to be the God of power, the God able to save. He saved a previous generation out of Egypt. Will you trust him? This is the God who is bountiful in his generosity, who has provided everything that they need, not only coming out of Egypt, but also in every situation in the desert way, he provides for them water and food and quail and manna and everything else that they need. They get it. The God who is merciful towards them, despite their grumbling and their complaining and their rebellion against their leaders, God continues to lead them on day by day, bringing them towards that promised land. God is a sovereign God, we call him, a God who overrules in the affairs of men, who, who sees over all the things that are happening and leads and guides our lives if we're prepared to submit to him. But we throw him off as king. I will have no king. I will be the king of my own life and destiny, we will say. It's interesting that God brings them to a place of suffering so that they might see clearly who he is. That's God's intention. He brings them to a place of suffering so that they might see who He is. But instead, the suffering doesn't bring them to see well who God is. Instead, it galvanizes the hardness of their hearts and they push back harder against God. Seems like that often in our lives too, doesn't it? What is the point of suffering? It was C.S. Lewis who said, suffering is God's megaphone. That shouts to us in our pain and says, Turn to the Lord, turn to the Lord and seek help there. Don't harden your heart against the Lord any longer. There's a beautiful story told in the Old Testament, the story of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea represents the Lord, and Gomer represents his unfaithful people. A wife of adultery, she's called. And actually, she keeps running from the family home to seek her lovers in all sorts of directions. And Gomer is instruct, uh, sorry, Hosea is instructed to put thorns in the way in every path that leads from their little home so that she might not go towards these lovers. But even then, she's prepared to cut herself and hurt herself by pushing aside the thorns, the very obstacles that allows her to remain and be faithful, a faithful wife. And how often we do the same thing. We pursue our own agenda in unfaithfulness towards God, and we hurt ourselves, and we bleed. We're in a difficult situation. Isn't that an amazing thing that here God's judgment and wrath against our sin is part of His call to us? Come, come to me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. There's the invitation. Come if you're thirsty. Come if you're hungry. Come drink wine and bread with no cost. Come. The invitation comes to us again and again. But we are determined in our ways. Gladly we hear in this passage that these people repent. They turn from the direction. Even the direction that is blocked by the thorn bush. They turn from that direction and they head home they return again to the father. Isn't it interesting, the echoes of the story of the prodigal son here? I have sinned against you and against God. And they come to Moses and they say, we've sinned against you, we've sinned against God. We recognize that and we need forgiveness. We need forgiveness. Pray for us, they say. Pray for us. And how the church today needs intercessors, people who will pray for the lost, pray for those who still don't know Jesus, who will spend their time, whether in prayer meetings or in small groups or in different situations, maybe individually, praying, calling upon God, save the lost, turn them around, bring them to yourself. A great example is here. Moses comes to the Lord and the Lord says, yeah, make an image of a, a snake and put it on a pole. It's a bronze snake. One of the hardest metals that was available in the day. A bronze snake. Maybe a representation of the hardness of their own hearts. Would they look and see themselves there? Would they look and see their need of God's saving grace there? The invitation's to anyone. Anyone who looks. Anyone who looks. And that invitation is extended in the gospel, isn't it? To anyone, whoever, whoever would look for salvation, whoever would turn to God, God is there welcoming with open arms, wanting to bring us to Himself. And the command to look here is an interesting idea. It's not a glance, it's not a, 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 oh, I happen to see, not I happen to hear, but it's a, a sustained look, it's a gaze it's the idea of fixing your eyes by faith upon the provision that has been made by God for your salvation and for your well-being. When we do that, we live. When we do that, we live. There's the, the, the promise given. And anyone who looked by faith, we might say, they lived. They were healed. They were brought to a place of well-being again. These are challenging ideas, aren't they? In what ways have we sinned against the Lord? In what ways have we hardened our heart against Him and pushed back against His purposes in our lives? Uh, These are things that we can only respond, respond to personally and individually because of our individual journeys. But you know, this morning, the good news is that there's a better mediator than Moses to pray for you. There is one who stood between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself for our sins, the scripture says. The man who was the son of man, raised up on a pole like a serpent was raised up in Moses' day. And Jesus actually quotes these words in John chapter 3 famously. He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the son son of man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him, we'll have eternal life. There's the promise. There's why we need to learn from the past. There's why we need to measure our own responses to God in all the circumstances of life that face us, whatever they may be, and say, yes, humbly we submit because we are sinners and we need your mercy. We need your grace. We need the one that you have sent, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to save us. The words that go on from Jesus' lips are these well-known, internationally known words. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. You see the goodness of God? We think we're being condemned when, in fact, He's trying to draw us to Himself. Turn to Him. Run to Him. That's the response that he's looking for as we go through life. This, this verse has famously been used to allow you to substitute the world for your own name. For God so loved Alan McKinnon that he gave his one and only son for Alan McKinnon. That whoever believes in him, that if Alan McKinnon believes in him, he'll not perish but have everlasting life. Can you put your name there today and say, yeah, I know this to be true of me? Because this invitation is for you, for you personally, for you individually, wherever you are in life, however far south your life seems to have been going, whether from the past or in the present, or maybe your anxiety about the future, here is the promise of God's word. He loves you. He cares for you. He's done everything in his power to redeem you and to return you back again. If only you will come to him. How's your life journey been? Maybe this morning you've got attitudes and responses in your life. Maybe as a Christian. Maybe as a not yet Christian. And you're reflecting this morning and thinking, yeah, there's things I need to sort. There's things I need to say sorry for. The Bible word would be repentance. Things that we need to repent of and say, yeah, I'm sorry, Lord. Please, please help me. Please help me. I wonder today if you've recognized that you have been living with a stubborn heart, a stubborn heart that would not respond to God's overtures towards you as He tries to call you through the circumstances of life, perhaps. And it's time for you to say, well, I don't want to be rebellious any longer. I don't want to stand against God's purposes. I want to embrace Him and His purposes for my life. This is really what God's looking for, that He might be Lord in our lives, that He might be a welcome sovereign who rules over our lives, and we gladly own Him as Lord and as Savior, as King, if you like. That's what He wants, that the Lord Jesus might be the one in control of our lives. So, I want to ask you this morning, have you entrusted your life to Jesus? I've gone through Christian life in many phases where I've been pulled to this place, just pulled to this place. Uh, there is a sense in which we uh, commit our lives to the Lord at the beginning of life, and, uh, of Christian life, and we say, yes, Lord, I surrender. Forgive me. I want to follow you. But for living the Christian life for decades now, I know that this is the place you need to be, not just once, but every day. I'm going to trust you with my life. I'm going to trust you with all the circumstances of my life. I'm going to trust you. Even if you make my road go south, I can trust you. You see, that's the street view. You see the map, but when you get down to the street view, you see it so clearly. You understand it so well. And you realize that the road that he leads you on is the road that leads by the cross. It's a a road of suffering and pain and anguish, but it's the road that leads on to glory where we meet the Son, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the one who is our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for us at Calvary so that we would not have to suffer God's, God's wrath and punishment. So when your road goes south, will you look up to Jesus? Will you look and live? I pray that that might be your experience in coming days. Let's pray together. It's going to take a few moments of quiet uh, just to reflect on the things we've heard from God's Word this morning. And after a few moments, I'll pray. Then our service will be over. We'll not sing again. But... uh, An opportunity will be there if you want to talk to somebody, talk to me, talk to Andy, talk to Joel, talk to Sarah, talk to anyone that you think might be able to help you. There's an opportunity to respond to God's word this morning. As we wait quietly, maybe we could do a Darnley Mill church thing. If somebody wants to just pray a simple, short prayer, feel free to do that as we wait in God's presence for a few moments. Amen. Amen. -hmm. Well, we're very aware this morning that you are the God who searches our hearts. You know our inmost being. You are the one who knit us together in our mother's womb. You know the number of our days. You know all things. There's nothing hid from you. And so as we stand before you today, Lord, we want to be open and acknowledge that we are sinners. And you are good. You are a great God and a Savior. And we pray that this morning... No matter where we are in our journey, in our traveling, you'd help us just to again turn to you and entrust our lives to you. In all of their complexity, in all of the the gaps that we don't know and we don't understand and the things that confuse us and challenge us and maybe even grieve us deeply. Lord, we just want to trust you. We don't know what you're doing sometimes but we know that you're doing the right thing. Thank you that you are working all things together for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. Help us to be those people and help us to know your goodness from day to day. Give us a a spirit of thankfulness. Give us a new perspective on our situation that we might be a people who praise you even in the midst of difficulty. Thank you that even through the valley of the shadow of death, you've promised to be with us. We can trust you there too, because Jesus didn't just die. He rose again from the dead. He's our living Savior. He's our conqueror, and he makes us conquerors too as we trust in him. Thank you for time together in your presence this morning, and for the presence of your spirit amongst us. We pray that you'll bless us now with your uh, parting blessing as we bring our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.